So many of you will know I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but as a teenager, I was invited to a local youth group gathering at a church in the area, and I, and I went the first time, and I was struck and encouraged by how authentic and genuine the guy was who led that time. He didn't beat around the bush. He spoke plainly and directly to things. I respected that. And so I was invited to go again. And so I went to that youth group for the second time, but apparently he wasn't there. And apparently no one was really prepared to speak, it seems, that night, because what they did instead of having a talk is they brought out, they wheeled out this TV, and they took a tape, and they put it into the VHS player. Now, some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about when I say a VHS player. You might have to go Google it later, but it's like, like the abacus of the early film industry, ancient technology. Nonetheless, the video that night was a thief in the night. If you have seen that film, just go ahead and raise those hands proudly. Okay, a few of you over like 45. <laughs> yeah, well, A Thief in the Night was, was actually a pretty well-known to some generations Christian film uh, in 1972, and it was known uh, in part because it employed this combination of sort of the first Christian film, you would say, to employ like rock music and different kinds of horror techniques, honestly, horror effects to win over an audience. Over 300 million people apparently have seen that film, A Thief in the Night. And lest I risk ruining it for some of you, which I will a little bit right now, but that's okay. Um, basically, this film is about the rapture. So the rapture happens, millions disappear, planes crash, buses collide, like there are shots of just melting ice cream cones on the ground with no one around them, right? It's, it's that kind of a film. And the United Nations, yes, the UN, requires all the remaining people to receive a mark, this binary code, which is 666, right? Not too subtle, right there. On, so they got to wear the mark of the beast, and, uh, and the main character of the film, well, she, her husband is raptured, but she's remaining, and she refuses to get the mark of the beast. And she's captured, and then she escapes, and then she's tracked down, and she's cornered, and she slips, and she falls to her death, and you think that's how it's going to end, but then all of a sudden, it comes back, and she wakes up. And apparently, the whole thing has been a dream. So she's deeply relieved to realize, oh my word, this this whole thing was a dream. So she breathes a sigh of relief only then to turn on her radio and what's the announcement? But that millions have gone missing. Indeed, the rapture has happened. It's not a dream and yes, she's been left behind. And there's the theme song in the background. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Now, as a skeptical teenager, I confess I wasn't exactly won over by this film. The only thing sillier than the acting and the special effects and the theme music was the actual plot line itself for the entire movie. And I don't think my attitude is terribly uncommon. For when was the last time you heard a reasoned, 
careful, thoughtful discussion about the second coming of Christ. Right? Usually, media reserves that to like the quacks and the wackos, those kinds of folks. Christians, we've been prone to sensationalize it, and then we've been prone to sell it. And at the same time, non-Christians will then satirize and scoff at it, right? That's been what we tend to see. And in the process, most people are then thoroughly confused by it all. So what are we to make of it? What are we to make of the second coming of Christ? Friends, that's what I want us to be thinking about, because that's what Paul's going to have us thinking about as we return in this final study to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let me invite you to turn there now. The book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in 4 13, all the way through the end of chapter 5, the remaining part of the book, a lot of ground to cover. So if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We've got uh, Bibles in the seatbacks before you. You can find our text on page 987, 987. And just to be clear, unlike the sermon card, my fault, I'm not going to stop at 511. I'm not going to wait to finish the closing section after sabbatical. Right? That, just, that would be weird to keep you hanging that long. So we're going to cover the whole thing. So what are we to make of the second coming of Christ? Let's pick up where Paul does, 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, so if you were listening carefully, I think it's pretty obvious that the the main point, the principal concern of Paul's in these passages are the coming of the Lord. So that expression is what bookends our passage. It's really what begins it, again, and what ends it, 415. He writes, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, you see that right there in 415, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then notice how he closes, right, the bookend in 523 when he's praying that their whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. What? Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then even in the middle, chapter 5, verse 2, he's referring to the day of the Lord, which is the same thing he's referencing around the coming of the Lord. And so we get the sense as we come to these verses that it's at this point that we've come to the very purpose for which Paul penned this letter. When he sat down to write this letter, I think we're finally getting to the primary reason why he sat down to write. And he's actually been dropping hints at this all throughout the book. For every chapter has ended with but what a reference to Christ's coming. So look back with me. Look back to chapter 1. Just look there for a moment. Toward the end of chapter 1, how does Paul close? Verse 10, he writes about how they're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So waiting for his son from heaven, right there, that's a reference to the second coming. Then flip forward the next chapter, chapter 2. Look down with me toward the end of that chapter, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, we read from Paul, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Right There's the end of chapter 2. Toward the end of chapter 3, when Paul prays, look at 3.13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Paul's praying the Lord would what? Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So friends, it seems the Thessalonican church may not be that different from us as a church. They too suffered from a good bit of confusion around the second coming of Christ. And I think as we look at our passage, we can pretty much break it down into three distinct sections. So in 4, 13 to 18, Paul is going to instruct the church in what they don't know. Right, see how he opens, verse 13, 413. We do not want you to be uninformed. Right, they're ignorant of something, so he addresses what they don't know. But then in 5, 1 through 11, he's going to turn secondly and he says, well, listen, but this, what I'm about to say, this you really should know. 
right? For you yourselves, 5.2, are fully aware. And then he goes on. And then in the, the closing section, 5.12 through 28, he's then going to turn to how all this teaching should actually affect their own corporate life together. And so notice the conclusion of just the first two main sections, 4.18, Paul's going to say at the conclusion of what they don't know but need to know, therefore encourage one another with these words. And then the close of 5.11, what they should know and have forgotten, therefore encourage one another, 5.11, and build one another up just as you are doing. So all of this teaching Paul's given is meant to be for their encouragement, for their mutual edification, for their comfort. We're not reading anything of crazed lawnmowers, right? Without people pushing them because of the rapture. We're not reading of binary tattoos and the mark of the beast. There are no speculations about whether or not the Antichrist is right, Putin or Biden or Trump or Lord Fauci or whatever your political persuasion is, right? Nothing of that in the passage. Paul's instructions are not to promote speculation, but again, to provide consolation for them. He writes for their comfort, not to stir up endless curiosity. It's not why he writes. And I think his basic point is this. Your present life reveals your future hopes. You need to distill it down. Basically, that's what, that's what Paul's arguing. Your present life reveals your future hopes. Or maybe to say it another way, how you choose to live today reveals what you actually believe about tomorrow. How you choose to live today reveals what you actually believe about tomorrow. And if we dig a bit deeper, I think there are three things Paul would have us know about this second coming of Christ and the first thing from 4, 13 to 18 he wants us to see is that Christ's coming promises an eternal reunion. First thing to see, it promises an eternal reunion. That's 4, 13 to 18. Second, it requires careful preparation. That's 5, 1 to 11. And then third, it's displayed in familial communion. That's 5, 12 to 28. So it promises an eternal reunion, 4, 13 to 18. It requires careful preparation, secondly, 5, 1 to 11. And third, it's displayed in familial communion. All right, so those are your basic three points. We're going to walk through them. If you missed them, you've got to hear them again. All right. So the first, the coming of Christ. Paul wants us first to recognize what they didn't know, what they were uninformed of, namely that the coming of Christ promises an eternal reunion. It promises an eternal reunion. So as a child, I remember our first family trip to New York City. And at the time, I was living in rural New Hampshire. I was enthralled with all the lights and the skyline and the sounds and the sights and the endless activity of the big city, right? I was just enraptured by that. That was a pun. All right, never mind. Okay. So at the, at the end of the first day, right, that first day in New York City, we went down into the subway and one thing about me with traveling that's a little bit difficult is I tend to get distracted easily. So my poor wife can attest to this. She's laughing in the front row. You know, if there's something happening, I'm like, oh, I've never been here before, and I just tend to, like, 
head off this direction, and I can lose people sometimes, or they lose me because I stop and don't realize how long I've been staring at something. And so we're down there in the subway with my family, and it's happened, and I don't realize it. I'm just taking things in, I'm, my eyes are wandering this way and that, and I don't realize that like everyone's getting onto the subway, and then the moment I realize it, the doors are closing, and the subway's pulling away. Now, I'm like eight years old, and this is before cell phones, so I can't just pick up a phone like every eight-year-old does now and just text, hey, listen, meet me at the next stop. I'm eight years old, I'm in a big city, and there goes the subway. And in that moment, I thought I had been left behind on my own, and I was terrified, and it hit just like that, so fast, where I wasn't expecting it. Now, the good news is, Parents were freaking out. My parents realized I wasn't with them, and they didn't get on the subway. So after a moment of staring helplessly and fearfully, like they see me, there's a wonderful reunion, everyone's okay. (laughs) But crisis averted, right? Point being, that fear of being left behind in that moment, I think that's something of what the Thessalonians, at least some of them, were fearing. Because Paul's preached the gospel, they've gotten saved. It's clear he's taught some from five uh, right, 1 to 11, he's taught some about the coming of Christ and what it means to be ready. But in the intervening time, some of the members of that community have died, leaving others to wonder, wait, like, did they miss out? Are they going to lose out on the hope of Christ's coming if they've died before Christ has come? Would they miss out on all that? You know, the Greek poet, uh, Theocratus would, would say that hopes, this is a common idea at the time, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. So if that's how you've grown up, the dead die, are they without hope? And with each passing death, right, they would no likely, like their doubt would turn to despair. Which is why Paul says in 4.13, he says, listen, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, Paul's not saying there that Christians should grieve to a lesser degree than non-Christians. Death is a grievous thing. We will all grieve it. No, it's not that we necessarily grieve to a lesser degree. It's that when we grieve, we ought to grieve differently. That's what he's getting at. It ought to be a different kind of grief. And Paul's saying, listen, you're not going to be able to grieve differently if you remain uninformed and ignorant. So notice what Paul does. Paul encourages them. He doesn't like placate them with some hollow string of like religious platitudes, you know, oh, he's happier now, she's in a better place. He doesn't pull that kind of stuff. No, Paul actually gives a theology lesson. That's how he encourages them. He encourages them with a theology lesson. And some will be tempted to think, you know, theology, ah, that's for certain people, but, you know, be careful with it because theology tends to divide Christians and believers But friends, notice Paul will reject that notion outright. For Paul, ignorance, being uninformed, that's the most dangerous thing. That's the thing you actually have to watch. Ignorance leads to dangerous thinking, to damaging souls. So so often, if you read through the New Testament, Paul traces many problems in the Christian life to ignorance. In which case, A proper understanding is actually what becomes the key to blessing, right? Only true knowledge in Paul's mind can inspire true Christian hope. 
And what knowledge is that? Well, look down to verse 16. Paul's going to highlight four things in this little theology lesson he gives. He's going to say, first, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Right? Christ will return, he says. Then at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. So there will be a turn and there will be a resurrection. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There he talks about rapture. And then here the climax, end of verse 17. And so, and this is where Paul's driving at, and so we, dead and alive, will always be with the Lord. Right? Reunion. Reunion. Always. An eternal reunion, Paul says. So you've got return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. That, Paul says, is the Christian hope we must have. That's why we can grieve as those who grieve differently, grieve with hope. Because we know death won't have the last word. And notice when talking about the Christian, how does Paul do it? Notice his preferred word is not death. Notice he he uses that word sleep, right? Three different times in the passage, he refers to death as a kind of sleep. And that That distinction is not accidental because when we speak of death, we speak of death and it has a kind of finality to it. And yet sleep, right? Sleep is temporary. Sleep is rest. You know, our English word cemetery actually comes from the Greek word that means just a place of rest. Paul grabs that image of sleep and he does so for their encouragement because Like us, they had lost friends and loved ones to the grave. But far from being the last word, Paul would say, right, don't despair. They're merely asleep, right? One day they will awake and one day they will rise again. And how do they know that what Paul says is a trustworthy word Well, notice everything he says in verses 16 and 17 is prefaced by what he says in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So right there, Paul's either referencing what he received directly from Jesus or what Jesus has taught on to his disciples and was passed along to him. Either way, Paul's saying, listen, this isn't some pie-in-the-sky theology. This isn't just wishful thinking. This is coming with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself that I say these things. Now, we tend to get caught up in all the details, right, about how this all works, right? Who's the archangel, How does everyone in the world hear the trumpet? How do we all see Jesus, like from New York to Shanghai? How does that work? What does this have to do with the millennium? What's the mark of the beast? Is that the COVID vaccine? Right, okay, you get the point. Again, Paul doesn't delve into those speculations. Such speculations miss the point. The point for Paul is that we will be with Christ. That's Paul's point. That's the repeated refrain in the passage, 4.14. God will bring, notice right there, with him. God will bring with him, i.e. with Christ, those who have fallen asleep. And then 4.17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Right. So the dead will be raised with Christ, then we who are alive will be caught up with them to meet 
in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we, all of us, dead and alive, will be always with the Lord. With the Lord. That's the emphasis Paul wants us to have. And then later in 5.10, he's going to say Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might what live with him. With him. That is the repeated refrain. That's the point. That the dead and those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ will one day be all together with Christ. So Paul wants them to see and he wants us to see. There is simply no possibility that any who have died in Christ will ever be separated from Christ. They died through him, verse 14. They sleep in him, verse 16. They will rise with him in verse 16. And they will come with him too, verse 17. Right? Nobody is left. Nobody is forgotten. No man left behind. Right? The ultimate marine. Christ has them. He's got them. And it's why he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Verse 18. So friends, when we lay a fellow believer in the ground, we're not saying goodbye. Theologically speaking, that's not what we're doing. When we lay them in the ground, we're saying goodnight. And that night will, in this life, often feel like a long night. It can feel like a hard night. That's not in any way to diminish the pain of losing someone close. But when we put those we love in Christ in the ground, right, if we just think of those, some of those from this last year, David McClinton, Betty Hanna, Ray Eidelman, Cynthia Burns, right, we can go down a list. As we think of those people, people we know, people we love, as we think of them, we've got to know their graves. They're not bars that imprison them finally. Those graves, Paul says, are but beds. They're but beds that temporarily hold them in their sleep. Those caskets are not chains that forever imprison and constrain them. Those caskets are nothing but covers. They are nothing but covers that keep them while they sleep until Christ comes. For one day, Paul says, he will return They will awake, they will be resurrected, and there will be an eternal reunion. And that's what Christ's coming promises. And that's the encouragement we're to have. But it doesn't just promise an eternal reunion. Paul's also going to say it requires careful preparation. It does require careful preparation, 5.1 to 11. You know, they, they say in life that Timing is everything, right? That's true, they say, in, in life, right? In love, even in business. So many of you will know, right, Facebook, it's a household name, but you probably don't know sixdegrees.com, right? That was actually the original social networking company, right? The first one to the space, the one that beat everyone to the punch, And if you can figure out, right, from the name, Six Degrees, it was actually based on that game, Six Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon. Some of you might be familiar with that, right? The idea that, like, you can basically connect everyone in the world through six sets of relationships. And it had a great concept. It had a great name, at least if you're in the 90s, it had a great name. 
right? It had a great funding. It was launched in 1997, and it had a great start. The only problem was, like, most of us were on dial-up, which just meant it was crazy slow and clunky, and it was just about a decade too early. Timing was off, and timing is everything. And that's how these Thessalonians are feeling about the second coming, They're like, man, if we just knew the time, if we had the date on the calendar, we would be all good. And that, they're just like the disciples, right? What do the disciples ask Jesus? They say in Mark 13, 4, tell us, Jesus, when these things will be. And yet what was read earlier? Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son Now, that can confuse people. If you want, just go back and listen to the sermon I did in Mark 13, 4. So not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Mark 13, 32, and 33. And yet, how many prophets, how many supposed prophets and, and teachers have actually built ministries and they've launched whole publishing empires around the notion that they can name and determine the time and the date, right? So you had the famous Millerites in the 19th century. Uh, You had Edgar Wisnett's bestseller. Some of you guys maybe remember that one. This was like the former NASA physicist or something. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Okay, I'm dating myself again. Nope, don't know that one. You got to go watch A Thief in the Night. All right. Harold Camping, right, more our generation, or at least a number of years back, Harold Camping made many of the same uh, predictions. And yet for Jesus and for Paul, the only thing certain is that we can't be certain of when that day will exactly be. And Paul says, guys, you should know this. 5.1, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So, right, much like the days of Noah, right, when there's eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and everyone is saying, oh, there's peace and safety and security, all seems well, Jesus says, and Paul says, until it isn't well. And Paul uses two images to sort of capture what that day will be like. You've got the image of a burglar and the image of a woman in labor. Both images. So the burglar, right, or the thief often comes, right, at night. Comes at night. Of course, they come because that's when you're not prepared. That's when you're not awake. The burglar doesn't send you a calendar invite and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to show up to your house on this night or on this day. They don't knock on the front door. They come when you least expect it. And the woman in labor, right? Well, on this one, obviously, I'm not a woman. I've not gone through labor, but I am a dad, and I've seen at least four labors, and my wife is a labor and delivery nurse, so I actually can speak somewhat to this one, right? And I remember, uh, I remember when, when Aaron was, was, uh, was giving birth to, to our third child, and we were there in the hospital, and there was a young nurse working with us. And so, the, you know, my wife was saying, hey, listen, like, it's getting close. And this young nurse was like, oh, no, no, you got some time. I'm thinking, oh, my word. She's had two kids before. She's a labor and delivery nurse. You don't say to that person who's delivering naturally, who's done this before, hey, you know what, like, you've got more time. I think she knows she doesn't have a lot of time. 
But Aaron's like, all right, okay. And then it goes a little longer, and my wife says, hey, listen, like, you really need to get the doctor. And she's like, no, 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 we've still got a little more time. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens, right? She gets that look on her face. She goes into that hole, that place that pregnant women go to when they're giving birth. And the nurse realizes it. And she's like, wait! It doesn't work. You should know that. Labor and delivery nurse, it doesn't work like that. And my wife just, you know, that like guttural, like, just like, it's coming. It's coming. Well, nurse didn't even have two gloves on, right? William was basically delivered on the bed. Okay. Point being in all of that. Point being in all of that. Both images are sudden. One is unexpected, the thief. The other is unavoidable, the labor. The first comes without any warning when the thief shows up at night. The second comes without any escape. There is nothing you can do when a baby is coming. And Paul's saying, so it will be on the day of the Lord. But Paul says of them, 5-4, But contrast, you guys are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So Paul's saying, listen, humanity can really put in one of two categories. Some are spiritually alert, they are awake, they're living in the light, and the other category of people are in spiritual stupor, right? They're in in darkness, right? They're dozing off, spiritually numb because they're basically in some kind of drunken stupor, Paul says, kind of like passengers aboard the Titanic. They don't realize in their partying and in their joy what is right before them in the darkness. So listen, I want to speak to you. If you've come here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you've come and you're not a Christian, I wonder how do you know that your relative peace and the prosperity that you may enjoy in your life, how do you know that that peace and prosperity isn't blinding you to a kind of deeper spiritual stupor? How would you know that? You know, how do you know maybe if your career or if your family or your good health isn't actually numbing you to the future realities of God's judgment? Because if you've perhaps come as a non-Christian this morning under some degree of discomfort or discouragement, Your temptation often, all of ours, is to curse God for this trial, this suffering we have. But my non-Christian friend, what if that suffering you may be facing even today, what if God was permitting that trial in order to awaken you to your real condition, to your real need? And what if that suffering was actually giving you a better picture and a clear window of the life that awaits. Nobody wants to believe that Judgment Day is coming. Right? That was true in Noah's day. That is certainly true in our day. It sounds comical to say that, and I get it. But I promise you, when that day comes, it will not be comical. And as surely as Christ rose from the grave and you cannot find him, so he will return and you will see him. We will all behold him. He came first, he said, in order to save. And he told us he will come again. And when he comes again, it will be to judge. Which means every day that we have prior to that day 
God says that is a day of grace. It's why we read, today is the day of salvation. It is our opportunity to turn from darkness and toward light so that that day won't surprise us like a thief. If you've come and you're a non-Christian, I pray that you would embrace Christ while you can. While you can, because there will come a time, right, when it's too late, right, when that time is past. And I don't say that to scare you, I don't say that to manipulate you, but simply to be honest with you and share with you the very things that Christ said. Today is the day of salvation. So what I would encourage you and implore you to turn to Christ, to trust in Christ by repenting of your sins and believing upon him alone for salvation. Jesus died, the Bible says, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. So all of us who are unrighteous, which is every one of us here, he died for us the righteous one for the unrighteous in order that we might be through him reconciled to God. That is the only way we can be reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus would call you as I call you now to repent of your sin, to walk away from that former life, to give yourself to Christ, to follow him in faith. So when that day comes, you won't be unprepared. Not of the Christian. God is calling you to be prepared for that day. But not by engaging in endless speculations about times and dates, but in careful preparation. That's where, that's where he goes. That's the point of verses 6 to 10 of chapter 5, right? Verse 6, keep awake, he says. Be sober. And how are they to do that? Verse 8, by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, if you know your Bible really well, you might be getting tripped up because you're like, wait, in Ephesians 6, I thought faith was the shield and like righteousness is the breastplate. Yeah, one of the things you're going to find with this spiritual imagery language, the uh, language of, um, of spiritual armor, Paul's going to vary the image some. So don't get tripped up by that, right? That's actually not the point. The point he's trying to make is that we need to be like sentries armed for duty, We need to be properly prepared, properly geared up, properly, uh, you know, equipped for the spiritual battles that we're going to face. And the most significant way we do that is by knowing our calendars. It's simply by knowing our calendars. So I don't know about you, but I looked over my calendar for the next two weeks, and if I look at work meetings, if I let stuff happen in our family life, kids' schedules, doctor's appointments, taking cars to the shop and the rest, I got like over 100 appointments in the next two weeks. And I trust your calendar looks pretty, pretty similar. And the reality is our calendars often will, well, they'll, they'll tell us that the most pressing things and the most immediate things are those things right before us. When in reality, the calendar we've got to know is this calendar Paul is putting out. And on that calendar, there's just one event in the future. That's it. One event. The coming of Christ. Right? So the reformer Martin Luther would say there were only two days on his calendar. This day and that day. That's basically a good Christian approach to these things. And so we prepare in part by keeping the coming of Christ right front and center of our lives together. So that may mean, right, you've got to write it on your bathroom mirror. I don't know, make it a recurring event in your calendar if you want. It can come back every day, like, because it's true, it could. 
I think it was how Colby was praying even in the, earlier in the prayer. Read over Revelation 20 through 22. Commit verses like that to memory. Do what you can so that the imminence and the importance of that future day is not lost in your own schedule and planning. You know, thinking of your calendars. I mean, how might your calendars look different if you actually took into account that future day? Would you perhaps try to schedule that appointment? Might you try to make that call, perhaps write that card, take that step at initiating communication with someone that needs to hear the gospel? Or maybe following up with that Christian for whom you know you need to be reconciled? Might you think about stewardship differently if you kept that day in front of you? Perhaps forgo or maybe delay a significant purchase because there's an opportunity to support gospel work here in this church or maybe support gospel work abroad, right, as we send folks out. If you thought Christ's coming was near, would you not want to meet more regularly with Christ's people to pray with them, to sing with them, to study with them? Might you want a desire to go join one of the church plants we're hoping to send out so you can see another bride of Christ there so more people can hear the good news of Christ? Friends, if you thought the coming of Christ was near, would you not sing of it more regularly? Would you not look at your trials differently? Would you not pray more fervently? Would you not hope with greater certainty? Would you not persevere with greater frequency? Because here's the thing, Christ's coming, Paul says, it is at hand. It is the next appointment on our calendars, and it's that appointment that matters most. You know, so often in the Christian life, we take the field of spiritual battle in our bathrobes. We are thoroughly unprepared, right? We've got little word, little Christian community, no life of prayer, no hope of heaven regularly on our minds, no promise of salvation, and then we wonder why we get crushed on that battlefield every day. It's like you're in a bathrobe. We need to prepare for that day together. Encouraging, Paul says, and building one another up, just as in fact you are doing, but do it all the more, Paul says. And then he's going to help them see how to do it, help us see how to do it. Which brings us to that third point, that the coming of Christ, that reality ought to be displayed in a kind of familial communion, in a kind of familial communion. So notice Paul says that we're to build each other up. He's just said that. Encourage one another. And friends, just catch from that. That's not just what Christian counselors do. That's not just what paid professionals do. Paul understands that's actually what local church communities of believers are to do together. And he gives them this picture in 5.12 through 28. And I say it's all about communion and their fellowship together, because time and time again in these verses, Paul keeps addressing them as brothers. He addresses them as brothers. Five times in these closing verses, he'll address them as brothers together. Over 19 times in the whole letter, he keeps pushing that and fronting that for them, that they not forget it, that they see it, that they hear it. And now to be clear, when he says brothers, Paul is not speaking just to the males in the congregation. 
right? So that Greek word brothers can be translated, depending upon context, brothers or brothers and sisters. And notice he closes in 527 by charging them to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, he doesn't just mean all the men in the room. He means all those in the congregation, men and women alike. Now, the ESV doesn't make that explicit. Most other modern translations do, but lest you be confused, he's addressing all of them when he says brothers. And Paul's point is to highlight their familial communion together, not in the sense of their biological family, but their spiritual family. Because that young church would have been composed right, of both Jews and Gentiles, folks for whom they would have been just natural enemies of one another. And Paul's saying, yeah, you know what? That identity the world would give you, that is not your identity. You are not natural enemies anymore in Christ. You are finally brothers and sisters in Christ together if you have God for your father. So you're not identified finally by your biological family for what you've come from, not identified by the color of your skin, the jobs you have, the people you choose to sleep with, your political party, immigration policy, whatever it may be, that is not our fundamental identity. If we are in Christ, that is it. And brothers and sisters means there's an eternal family we together are a part of. And if that's true, Paul says, your lives should display it. They ought to display it. And they ought to display it in three particular ways, he says, in their leadership, in their fellowship, and in their worship. That's basically what he's unpacking in 12 through 28, that their familial communion together, their lives together, well, that should be displayed in their leadership, their fellowship, and their worship. So he opens with leadership, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's interesting. Paul doesn't define the group there. He just describes it. Just describes it. Twice he refers what? To their labor, to their work. He's emphasizing the way this group is meant to toil on their behalf. Oh, who's he describing? He's describing pastors. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders or pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, Paul says, same word is here, labor in preaching and teaching. That verb for labor is used often of manual labor, right? How pastors are to sweat for their people because the nature of gospel ministry, well, it's labor, it is work. It is hard work when it is done honestly and when it is done rightly. So members of UBC, recognize your pastors, both those who are paid by you and those who give of their free time to do so, staff elders, lay elders, both of them, we desire to labor for you. And yet we too can get tired, we too can get discouraged. A great way to pray for us is that we wouldn't cease laboring for you and giving ourselves to you and work of the Lord. Pray that would be true of us. And recognize that the primary way I labor for you is by preparing to preach the word to you as I'm doing right now. It's not the only way I labor for you, but it is a significant and a central way in which I labor for you. And so what's the congregation's role in this? Paul doesn't say the congregation's to flatter their pastors or to mindlessly and naively follow them. Right? He'll warn of false teachers often. But it is to respect them and to esteem them in love. So a member of UBC, I wonder how that might describe you toward your leaders. 
Right? What would that look like to respect and esteem them in love? Hebrews 13, 17, that actually, that's actually to your advantage, that passage says. That's actually for your own spiritual benefit to do so. But it's not just the leadership. He's going to go on and say, yeah, that kind of, this kind of community should actually be witnessed in your fellowship together. Verse 14, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So the idle could have been some of those, right, we thought about last week, who are not working because they're just waiting, thinking the Lord's going to come at any moment, right, and they're stopped working. So he's saying, no, admonish those folks, right? They need to be working as they wait. The faint-hearted or discouraged could be those who fear that those who have died won't be with the Lord. No, encourage them, comfort them. The weak, there might be a reference to the sexually weak who don't know how to control their own bodies and holiness and honor, as we thought earlier in chapter 4. But friends, recognize all these commands here, they presuppose that Christians are in local churches, and in those local churches, it presupposes they're doing life together. And Paul's saying in that context what? He says, be patient with one another. That word for patience elsewhere is translated long-suffering. It is a characteristic of God, Exodus 34, 6, that he is long-suffering with his people. And if God has been so long-suffering with you, Paul's saying you need to be long-suffering with your fellow brothers and sisters, which means you need to be patient with them. You need to hold fast to them. It means you shouldn't quickly just give up on them. Remember of UBC, God may be calling you right now to be a little more patient with some of those in the room for whom you've covenanted with. Right? We don't change overnight. That's not how sanctification works. It takes time. But notice also this fellowship is to be marked by rejoicing. And they're to pray, verse 16, without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. You know, at lunch, a good question to ask perhaps is right here. How does my life display such qualities of kind of, of rejoicing, a constant rejoicing, a, a, a regular praying without ceasing? giving thanks in all circumstances. How does that define me? How doesn't that define me? What might it look like for that more to define me in my relationships with others? And what would that take? You know, maybe even just think of prayer. You know, it's great to pray alone. It's great to pray with your family. But remember, biological family is not finally what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the spiritual family. So what would that look like for you to pray more regularly with the body? Maybe it's coming on Sunday nights and praying as we gather and pray together as a congregation. Maybe it's being a part of a life group where you're getting to pray more regularly with other brothers and sisters in the congregation. Maybe it's by attending the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Maybe it's just by gathering with another Christian one-on-one and praying more regularly together. But the assumption Paul has is congregation members are praying regularly and consistently with one another. How are we doing that? How do we need more to do that? And it's not just leadership and fellowship. He also says they're corporate worship, verse 19. He says they're not to quench the spirit, which we kind of trip up at that. But he seems to be saying we're not to stifle, we're not to hinder the work of the spirit. And then he says that one of the ways we would do this, I think, is the, is the, is the connection, is by despising prophecies. Now, we could have a long conversation about what in the world Paul means by prophecy. But I think, broadly speaking, Paul is referencing here the, the work of the spoken word and the life of the congregation. I think that's, broadly speaking, what he's getting at. And he's saying, you know what? That word, that spoken word in the life of the body, in whatever forms it may come, 
right? That's what we're not to hinder. We're not to ignore it. We're not to reject it. But he does say we're to test it. And the image there is one of a counterfeit. So like what's genuine teaching versus what's fake teaching? And Paul's saying, you know, you got to test it. You sort of got to bite into that teaching. Like you'd bite on a coin to see if it's the real deal. Like is this thing actually gold or is it something else? No, you got to bite into it, taste it. Because there's lots of counterfeit teaching out there. So we've got to test that teaching. Ask, like, is it consistent with God's word? Does it proclaim Jesus as Lord? Does it uphold the gospel of grace by salvation, right? In Christ alone, does it do that? Is the one who preaches it, is that one's life consistent with what they preach? Is it accurate and authoritative and humbly presented? Does it edify the church? Like, those are the kind of questions to be asking when we're trying to discern, is this, is this teaching we should receive? And yet, lest that litany of commands wear us down, what does Paul do? But it's as if he sort of freezes and he says, okay, you guys have got it. You've heard me before. I've run through this list. I've given you many things to think about in the life of your congregation as you pursue peace with one another. And he closes in that benediction in 23. He's going to finish with a few other comments, but basically closes with that benediction in verse 23. And he's going to pray for their sanctification. He's going to pray for their preservation. That they would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss 524. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul's reminding them as he closes. Finally, their hope doesn't rest on their faithfulness but Christ toward them. So friends, just to circle back with where we started, how do you think about Christ's return? Do you even ever think about Christ's return? Because the temptation I had, the temptation many of us have, it is to mock it. It is to dismiss it. It is to reject it as absurd. And when I watched that film made back in 1972, I thought it looked pretty absurd. But Paul's saying, yeah, you know what? Christ's coming, it is certain. That date is set on God's calendar, and with each passing day, it marches closer. We march closer to that date. And that truth of Christ's coming promises an eternal reunion. It will require of us careful preparation and should be displayed as we prepare in a kind of familial communion together. You know, as much as I mocked that corny movie, it got one thing right, right from our text. Jesus will come back like a thief in the night. The question is, will we be ready? Let's pray.